Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the World Soccer Talk podcast. On this podcast, we have two special things. We have a breakdown of the FIFA World Cup draw, uh, all the groups uh, scheduled to play uh, the games later this year. Plus, we have an exclusive interview with Andres Cantor, uh, the the world-famous commentator from Telemundo, who is in Doha. And uh, we were fortunate to get uh, enough to get uh, him on the line to ask him some of the, his reaction to the World Cup draw. On the panel today, we have Kyle Fansler, and my name is Christopher Harris. All right, Kyle. <laughs> this is probably, in terms of the, the, the FIFA World Cup draw, it's crazy because uh, we'll go through each group in a minute. But uh, what was your initial reaction from the draw? Any any surprises? Any shocks? And any kind of outrage? Any any reaction to this one in a big way? In terms of the draw itself, I wouldn't say there was any huge reactions. I actually think the groups, on aggregate, are pretty fair. There's not one group that I say, oh wow, that group is definitely the hardest group out there. There there are obviously groups that are more challenging, and our groups that are. A little more uh, more simple for uh, some of those bigger teams, but I don't think there were any major things that popped out for me in terms of the the World Cup draw. I will say it was a long time getting there. I think it was like 45 minutes or so to get to the actual draw after all of the uh, the FIFA festivities with the uh, with the draw. But once it got there, it I thought it rolled on pretty smooth, and honestly, it just made me look forward to the World Cup a little bit more. Yeah, well, let's start there. We're, we're not going to spend a lot of time on focusing on the the coverage, just because it is what it is. Um, and but there were some issues with it. I mean, a- anyone who watched it in terms of kind of the pre match, well, it's not pre match, the pre pre draw, and watched the the opening forty five minutes, um, it really felt like an infomercial for for Qatar. Uh, you mean kind of how great the country is, and you mean how great it is for them to be hosting it. Uh, and some really kind of cheesy animation. Um, it, it was. I, I think everyone watching it just wants to watch the draw. They just want to find out, okay, which teams are in which groups. But obviously, FIFA knows and, and Qatar knows that um, they have the world's attention. So here's an opportunity to go ahead and uh, talk about the country, talk about uh, it, speak in Arabic about uh, different things, and that that was the thing though too is watching it in Fox is whenever there was a someone speaking a foreign language, Fox didn't have any translator uh, translating whatever they were saying into English, so it'd be an awkward cutaway back to the studio for Fox Sports, which is. The studio is in Los Angeles, um, and in in comparison to you have Telemundo, the Spanish language broadcaster. Telemundo uh, has the rights to the World Cup also, and they also show the draw. But whenever there was someone speaking Arabic or French, uh, you you could hear the the translator um, translating what they were saying. And then the other thing too, Telemundo has their studio in Doha, uh, in Qatar, actually there, right at the draw, uh, broadcasting directly from there. So not a good start by Fox. Uh, we'll get into that a little bit later in terms of, in terms of some of the comments they made. But uh, any other highlights or lowlights, um, Kyle, from that, that opening kind of uh, pre-draw coverage? No, not really. The, uh, the language thing was definitely the biggest one for me. Um, I'm totally in support of FIFA, you know, having everybody speak their own native languages. You know, uh, uh, the Amir of the state of Qatar spoke in Arabic. Uh, Didier Deschamps was there, spoke in French. There was an Egyptian singer speaking in Arabic. And I'm totally for that. But I don't speak any language that's not English outside of a little bit of Spanish from high school. So I would like to at least have some grasping of what was going on, like what they were talking about. Obviously, I could put one and one together to figure out that they're talking about oh, how great it is to have the World Cup in Qatar, or what it means to them. But just to be able to understand the context would uh, would go a long way for my enjoyment of the, the program. 
Yeah, so let's, well, before we go into each group and going through that uh, a couple of minutes ago, I think you're right, uh, Kyle, when you mentioned in terms of reaction, any big reaction from this draw, it's it's most of the groups are pretty balanced and that's the thing there's always almost always a group of death and that's usually the first talking point where everyone uh, kind of uh, kind of zeroes in on whatever group it is and says oh oh my gosh like portugal and and uh in germany and you mean united states and, and those types of groups it's like oh this is definitely the the group of death in this case i think this is the first world cup in a long long time where there is no group of death um, and funnily enough, right after the draw was made, it goes back to Fox Sports in the studio. And the first thing that Rob Stone says, the presenter, the presenter of Fox's World Cup coverage, the go-to guy, the Rebecca Lowe of Fox Sports, he says, Oof, like United States, uh, I think if Wales qualifies from Group B, this is this is the uh, group of death. And I have, uh, you mean, England's a good team, Iran's a good team, the United States is a good team, and, and then whether it's Scotland, Ukraine, or, or, or Wales, uh, they're all good teams. Every single team that has qualified uh, for this World Cup and, and is about to qualify for this World Cup is a good team. Otherwise, they wouldn't be there. But to say that's the group of death, I mean, just to me, shows me a lack of... Uh, I don't know, has Rob Stone been watching a lot of soccer from around the world in the last few years? I mean, so for him to say that is it's pretty laughable and, and it's it, not a good look for Fox Sports uh, on their really first day of World Cup coverage um, before I mean, the 2022 World Cup starts in November. No, and uh, I think it makes sense just because for Fox's perspective, they're always going to want to prop up the U.S. and not only make the U.S. seem like a, a great side, which, you know, they're, they're a good team, but obviously they want to build up uh, some more drama as the U.S. starts their qualification. But I really think that there are other groups that he could have chosen that you could say are the quote-unquote group of death. And like you said, and like I've said, there's not really one of those this year or, yeah, down in the, uh, November, but I mean, there are stronger groups than the U.S.'s group, which, I mean, I'm not saying that England, Iran, and uh, one of Scotland, Ukraine, and Wales are bad teams, but I think there are better teams out there. Yeah, you could easily argue that Mexico and Canada have tougher groups than the United States, uh, even though the United States group is tough too. It's, it's just not a group of death. And um, so that before we go, get into kind of the schedule and how things are going to play out, let's go through the groups, first of all, for those listeners who may be wondering what the final groups were or may want to get some of, some of the analysis. So Group A, Qatar, Ecuador, Senegal, and Netherlands. And to me, Kyle, this is a wide open group. There's some good, good teams in this one. It, it, it's going to be really hard to, to figure out which, which, uh, which of these go through. Yeah, uh, Qatar obviously did well um, when they were invited to the Gold Cup. Uh, I think they lost one nothing to the United States in what was the semifinals. I could be wrong there, but yeah, obviously right. uh, Ecuador qualifying out of Comabol, uh, you know, they finished above uh, Chile and Colombia. Uh, Senegal, the Afcon champions, and the Netherlands making their long-awaited return to the World Cup after uh, after missing in 2018. It's a it's a decent group. It's a kind of I like to think of it as a sleeper group. Uh, I am rooting, I'll be honest here, I'm rooting for Senegal. I like to see the African teams always do well just because they bring a lot of fanfare to the World Cups. But and there's a lot of uh, possibilities here for these teams to do well in the World Cup. So lots of fun games there in the in the group stage. Yeah, and of course Senegal uh, beating uh, Egypt to qualify for the World Cup there. Yeah, that one's a wide open one and those games should be pretty entertaining in terms of uh, very well balanced between those four teams. Then we move to Group B, which is England. Uh, which arguably has to be the favorites in this group, uh, Iran, United States, and then the winner of either Scotland, uh, Ukraine, or Wales. So Scotland plays Ukraine in June. The winner of that game will then play Wales. Uh, and then the winner of, the, of that game then will, will be in, into the World Cup. So that's a little bit of a disadvantage, though, for the United States, because the very first game that the United States plays in this uh, World Cup will be, I think, Monday, November 21st. It'll be USA against either Wales or Scotland or Ukraine. So so the US has to wait until late June to find out which team they're playing first. That's going to hamper their scouting a little bit. It's going to also probably impact in terms of, I mean, maybe they'll try to do a friendly against a European team to see if they can get, I mean, similar playing style. But uh, 
I mean, if it, if it is, I mean, it, any of those three teams could easily qualify: Scotland, Ukraine, or Wales. Um, Ukraine, who knows, right? If if they'll even get to play the match, uh, given the current situation in Ukraine, I, I hope that they do. Uh, but at the end of the day, I, th- I think there's going to be a lot of people that would be hoping that Ukraine makes it from a uh, humanitarian point of view. Uh, but whoever makes it out of those three teams uh, will play the United States in that first game. Yeah, I thought uh, I thought Fox actually made some good points. Uh, you never want to play a team that's got all the support because they're just going to be riding that high. So obviously the host nation is going to have a lot of support. And then Ukraine, obviously right now, has all the support in the world. Let's have a few countries. So they're going to be coming in, really playing with something to play for, not just being at the World Cup. So it's not an easy group. Uh, there's not going to be an easy group in the World Cup. But I, I think it's fair to say that there is a path out of the group, which is always going to be the first step for Greg Berhalter uh, when it comes to the World Cup. Yeah, the big winner in this one to me is Fox Sports. Um, so England against the United States, a uh, rematch of the 2010 uh, World Cup game group stage where it ended 1-1 this will be played on Friday November 25th the day after Thanksgiving and uh, this one should get massive ratings we don't know uh, what the kickoff times will be quite yet uh, we will publish those um, at worldsoccertalk.com as soon as FIFA confirms them because oftentimes they'll move the, the actual kickoff times around a little bit uh, to allow for you mean maximum viewing but USA against England could easily be, you mean, a 5 a.m. Eastern time kickoff or, or an 8 a.m. or 11 a.m. or a 2 p.m. You would think hopefully maybe a 2 p.m. perhaps uh, would be ideal. But again, still, it's not going to be prime time in the evening. So but still, it, it should be some some massive ratings there. Yeah, for sure. And then the last game for the U.S. in that group is against uh, Iran. And that one is uh, on the following Tuesday, I believe it is, in that, uh, in that November. I think it's November 29th. So you have the U.S. I, I guess the way that the schedule kind of uh, flows is you have Iran, which is a good team. I mean, they're definitely a good team. But out of the teams that the, the U.S. will play, arguably Iran would be the weaker of, of the opponents. But that's the last game. So... You mean the U.S. could easily play Ukraine in the first game, and you mean you mean it could be one of the European teams that beats the United States, um, and then the U.S. has to play England, which would be a very difficult game to get uh, points from, and then go into into that last final game. So the way the schedule is set up for the U.S. isn't ideal by any means. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, you like to start off with a win, um, just get three points under your belt. Uh... Obviously, it worked out well for the U.S. when that happened in 2014 because they only needed one point out of the next two games to get to the knockout stages. But I think Greg Berhalter, looking at this group, like I said, he's going to see a path out of it. Um, but like the, the timing and the, the scheduling does play a big part in that. And I think also being a member of the teams that play on the opening day will also have some impact uh, against with that game against uh, you know one of those uh, European uh, playoff contenders. Uh, just, you know, you don't get to get too accustomed. You don't get to see other teams play, so you're going to be one of the first ones out there. It's, uh, it's a tough stage. Obviously, it's always going to be a tough stage on the World Cup, but uh, it should be fun to watch the U.S. go up against a, a pair of European sides and obviously Iran, who they have history with when it comes to the World Cup. Yeah, well, the, yeah, the history, 1998 World Cup, Iran won that match against the United States uh, 2-1. Uh, in the 98 World Cup, which is a long time ago for a lot of us, right? 98 World Cup, the United States finished last out of all the countries. Um, so there is history there. Um, but yeah, you're right. In terms of the timing of this, uh, Kyle, uh, Monday, November 21st, it's the first day of World Cup action. Uh, it's probably going to be the last game of that day. USA against Wales, Scotland or Ukraine, probably in the 2 p.m. Eastern time slot. So which is good for viewing viewing figures. But um uh, England playing Iran earlier that day. So you could have England getting perhaps three points right off the bat and then USA kind of feeling that they have to get points out of that game. Um, a loss in that game could be really, really detrimental to to their uh, chances of getting through to the group stage. We have to remember, too, that um, USA played Wales in a friendly a couple of years ago and it was against a, a B team of Wales and that game was, uh, I think, it ended up 0-0 uh, in a game. So... Wales is definitely no walkover. Um, I'm 
born in Wales, uh, have family in Wales, watch Wales very closely. I'm also, of course, an American citizen, have lived in this country longer than I have uh, in the UK. So uh, for me, for me, Kyle, honestly, this is a dream come true group. <laughs> so you have the United States where I live and I'm a citizen of, I'm proud and support the United States. I've got England where my dad's from, and I've spent, I spent a lot of time in England, and also, of course, watching uh, the England uh, national team and following them and the clubs. And then Wales, which, which is my birth country, which I have a lot of affinity to. Uh, the only one I don't have any uh, attachment to is Iran. <laughs> uh, but maybe between now and November, maybe I can, uh, I don't know, develop some relationships with, with Iran. Yeah, I do think it's also funny just the uh, the storylines that, that Fox can use during the World Cup. I mean, the U.S. versus England's obviously a big game. Don't have to do too much to build up that one. But then, like, England-Scotland, if that were the matchup, that's obviously a big rivalry. Same with uh, England-Wales. Uh, obviously, Ukraine's going to be uh, the fan favorite throughout the tournament. So there's a lot to follow in this group. Obviously, in the United States, it's gonna, the U.S. is going to be the, the main talking point. But it's uh, there's a lot to keep track of in Group B for sure. Yeah, so let's move to Group C. Group C is Argentina, Saudi Arabia, Mexico, and Poland. And this, I feel, is a really tough group because you've got, um, well, Mexico that's not really playing at the top of their game right now. Uh, but it doesn't really matter in, in qualification. As long as you qualify, that's the main thing. And then when you get to the tournament, uh, it's, a diff- it's a different scenario. It's a, it's a cup competition. And uh, Poland, you mean Lewandowski, of course, you mean the star there, the captain, kind of the, the goal scorer. Argentina, I mean, uh, Leo Messi's. This has to be his last World Cup, and then Saudi Arabia, which is a, a little bit of an underdog there too. But again, an, another quality side. But uh, th- this group reminds me of uh, 2006 World Cup. Maxi Rodriguez scoring that amazing goal for Argentina against Mexico. Um, but Mexico is going to have a really tough time in this group. Uh, Kyle, what do you think? Yeah, I think it's a tough group for Mexico just because. It's always going to be hard to play against some of the world's best players. You know, obviously Messi and Lewandowski are two of the world's best players, especially over the last couple of years. So you obviously look at Argentina and you look at Poland. You would think that they are, based on star power alone, nothing else, but they are probably two favorites. But then Mexico, obviously, they have a pretty strong record in getting out of the groups. But, you know, they haven't been able to do too much outside the inside the knockout stages. But I think it's a, another fun group. Um, it's always going to be fun to watch the, the star players. I'm really looking forward to watching Messi play Lewandowski. Uh, whenever uh, Bayern Munich would play Barcelona, those would always shape up to be pretty exciting games. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's a, it's another fun group. Um, that's another one where it's kind of hard to predict which two teams advance because uh, you could say, sure, Argentina's going to advance because they're the Copa America winners, but, I mean, Mexico, like I said, always successful in the group stage. Poland, uh, Lewandowski could carry them and Saudi Arabia, like you said, is a underdog, but everyone loves an underdog. Yeah, and that's the thing too with the schedule. Just like with the United States, the schedule does uh, Mexico no favors because uh, Mexico plays Poland in the opening game of that of their of their group, and that's on uh, on the Tuesday, the November twenty second. The next game after that is Mexico plays Argentina, and then the final game is against Saudi Arabia. So just like with the U.S. Uh, it's that's a tough schedule, mm-hmm. um, and that and it just shows the importance of being um, in that pot one and and being seeded. How much it does give you an advantage, yeah. at least uh, in terms of the way that the games play out. Mm-hmm. Group D, Group D is France, Denmark, Tunisia, and then the winner out of the intercontinental playoff, which will be uh, Australia or uh, UAE versus Peru. So uh, only one of those teams will, will be able to advance. Um, Australia is going through a tough time right now. Uh, UAE, I don't really rate extremely highly. So Peru, I would think in terms of uh, just the the passion. I mean, and they did well the other night in the, the World Cup qualifiers. But it could be France, Peru, uh, Denmark, and Tunisia. Let's move on to Group E. Group E is Spain. Uh, and then the winner between uh, Costa Rica and New Zealand and then Germany and Japan. And to me, this is one of the hardest groups. I mean, if you have, I mean, Spain, Germany, and Japan. Japan is is a really, really hardworking, uh, skilled team. And this one I, I see is a, a difficult uh, difficult task there for um, those countries to get out of that group. There's no, no easy group by any means. 
And let's move on to Group F. Group F is uh, Belgium, Canada, Morocco, and Croatia. And poor Canada. I mean, Canada finishes fir- first in qualifying, right, in, in, uh, for, out of CONCACAF. And what's their reward for coming in uh, first in qualifying? Belgium, arguably one of the best teams in the world. Croatia, you know what I mean, with Modric and, and the rest of them, uh, you know I mean, went to the, uh, the World Cup finals recently against France and in Morocco. And Morocco's uh, always a tough North, North uh, African team uh, to play against. <sighs> do, you, do you fancy Canada's ch- chances here, Kyle, at all? After watching them in CONCACAF's qualifying, I actually think Belgium and Canada get out of that group. I think Canada's a really well-rounded side. I think Belgium, uh, they're one of the favorites to win the tournament. Obviously went to the semifinals in 2018. Just so deep and talented Belgium is, but uh, it's hard to look at Canada and Croatia and pick between one of those because obviously Croatia was in the final in 2018, so they have the experience. Obviously it's probably Luka Modric's last World Cup, and they still bring over a lot of the pieces that were part of that 2018 run. So it's a it's kind of interesting to look at Croatia as one of those kind of more experienced sides. Canada making just their second World Cup appearance, obviously not going to have the experience uh, playing on the world's biggest stage. But I do like Canada's chances. I mean, they were by far the best team in CONCACAF qualifying, losing just once. So it's a, another tough group. Um, I feel kind of bad for Morocco because those are three very challenging teams that they have to play. Um, but that should be a good one between a lot of good teams from uh, different federations. Yeah, Canada's first game of that group is against Belgium. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a tough, tough, tough game. I mean, Canada's a good team, though. I mean, so there's, there's, it's not as if... Uh, I mean, they'll, they'll give, it, give them a fight, for sure. That'll be a great game to watch there. Mm-hmm. Group G, Brazil, Serbia, Switzerland, and Cameroon. Th- this one's going to be difficult. I mean, Serbia's no no pushover by any means. Switzerland always seemed to do really, really well um, in, well, more so in, in some of the big tournaments. And then Cameroon, who qualified on, on the last day there in the, uh, the playoffs of the World Cup, fi- uh, World Cup playoffs out of uh, Africa, and then Brazil. So you would imagine that Brazil would go through this one relatively comfortably do you think Kyle or do you, do you think this is not the same Brazil of, of yesteryear no I do think it's I, I'm not going to say comfortably because I don't think anything's comfortable in the World Cup but I do think they go through and it's they're not the same Brazil of the past couple of years and I think that's honestly for the good thing because obviously they won the World Cup in 2002 but since then they've been kind of struggling to pick up that success uh, obviously the uh, quarterfinals in 2018. So I do think they get out. I think they do pretty well. They stack up pretty well against Serbia, Switzerland, and Cameroon. But the other three teams, in order to get that second spot out of the group, for me, it's a toss-up. I really like Cameroon. I think getting out of Africa and getting into the World Cup is super challenging. That's That's a gauntlet to get out of Africa in World Cup qualifying. But then, obviously, Switzerland uh, finished top of their group in Serbia, also top of their group in UEFA World Cup qualifying. So, obviously, those aren't bad teams. And like you said, Switzerland has success when it comes to major tournament uh, events, uh, whether it be the Euros or the World Cup. So, it's it's another tough group. I do think that if I had to put money on it, I would say Brazil and Switzerland get out of the group. Uh, I think they're just too much talent there for Cameroon and Serbia. Uh, I think that's really going to be the difference maker in this group is just do they have the star power? And that's uh, that's something that Brazil and Switzerland have. And lastly, uh, Group H, which is uh, which is to me very much like Group A, very wide open. It's going to be a great group to watch. Group H is Portugal, Ghana, Uruguay, and then South Korea. And to get again, I think this is wide open. This should be a really really entertaining group and. Uh, it's a difficult one to pick pick a like t- the two of the best teams out of this one. So um, that one's going to be a fascinating group too. Just like Group A too, where it is very uh, eclectic in terms of uh, the types of teams that are in that group. So overall, pretty exciting. I mean, definitely exciting. The, the competition starts November 21st in the World Cup. A long way to go between now and then. Um, but it, I don't know, just in terms of the TV coverage, I was I was really... Again, going in with an open mind, hoping that Fox was going to really um, change a little bit in terms of their coverage and, and maybe start focusing, I don't know, treating the, the competition more seriously. 
Um, and it just feels like I'm not sure if it, whether it's budget cuts or whether it's just this is the way that they're planning on doing things in terms of um, basically kind of not having anyone, not having their studio in in uh, in Doha. Or maybe perhaps it's because they had uh, the coverage of the U.S.-Panama game in Orlando uh, this past weekend and just couldn't put the, the plans together in time to, to get a studio set up in Doha. But uh, not a good start by them. Um, and it's the same old characters. Uh, Alexi Lalas, Moadu, uh, Rob Stone, Stu Holden. I, I really hope and think that they should be looking at... Uh, adding to their talent and kind of just really kind of getting more depth there, just as the U.S. would uh, in terms of Greg Berhalter looking at his squad, looking at depth. And so I have to wonder if they're starting to kind of consider some other people to to join them uh, for the World Cup coverage, uh, just to mix things up a little bit. So, you I mean, whether it's people from Europe or South America or, or wherever, I don't know if it's big names like, I don't know, Rio Ferdinand or, I mean, some some different talent there to really uh, add a different perspective because it's very, very predictable uh, for the most part. But um, And then hopefully looking at 2026 World Cup, hopefully uh, the organizers at FIFA put together a different type of uh, World Cup draw that isn't so... Oh, it was boring. It was, yeah. Yeah, it was <laughs> cheesy, uh, cheesy, boring, and uh, an infomercial was is not a good good combo. Yeah, it seemed to drag on there until the actual draw started. Um, there was times where I was watching it, and I check my phone, and I look up every couple of minutes and make sure I didn't miss any teams get pulled out of pots or anything. But it dragged on for I think it was just over forty five minutes. So it was a, it was a long time to wait for the draw, but once it came, it it was there. So. Absolutely. Okay. All right. So we're going to uh, go to the interview uh, between Carl Fanzler and Andres Cantor uh, live from Doha, well, recorded live um, to talk about the his thoughts on the World Cup draw, which uh, Andres is you know, a scholar of the world's game, has covered many, many World Cups uh, over the decades uh, for Telemundo and other broadcasters, and uh, will share his insight not only into the actual World Cup draw and his reaction, but also what it's like in, in Qatar. Um, he's made several trips there, doing stadium tours to take a look at the uh, the actual sites where he'll be commentating a lot of these games uh, directly there from, from Qatar. And then after the interview is over, then we'll we'll go over to the uh, listener mailbag, and then talk, discuss a lot of uh, the questions that you have and give you the answers to to those. So, uh, over to Kyle, over to you, and uh, to Andres. I'm here today with Andres Cantor, who is the lead commentator for Telemundo's coverage of the World Cup, and he is actually in Doha after uh, watching the World Cup draw today. So. Andres, you uh, you've seen the World Cup draw, and now you're getting ready for it, even though it's down uh, down in November. So, what are your uh, initial reactions to the World Cup draw today? I think Gawe was fairly even. Uh, I don't think there's a group of death. I think uh, all the powerhouses have decent group, let's say, and it was coincidental that m- most of the heads of group did not get. The anyone from pot two, which was the toughest opponent to begin their journey in the World Cup. So you know how important it is to win the opening match for everybody. And I think, uh, you know, the Argentinas, the Brazils, the France, uh, and so forth will have, uh, I mean, nothing is set in stone, of course, this is football after all, but they have fairly decent opponents to think that they can win the game. Now, um, you know, the only team that doesn't know who they will play yet, not the only one, but one of the three is, you know, our own USA national team because uh, they have to wait for the European Intercontinental Playoffs. So we will see uh, what happens in June, who gets to play Wales, if it's Ukraine or uh, or Scotland. And uh, we will see, you know, it's going to be interesting to get to face England on Black Friday. And uh, it's going to be a nice group for for the U.S. Yeah, and Andres, uh, outside of the U.S., I also know you're obviously very fond of your native Argentina. I'm just curious what you think of their group with uh, Saudi Arabia, Mexico and Poland. Well, I'm going to put an asterisk really to every uh, answer that I give you and I have given, uh, you know, ever Mm -hmm. since we knew we were coming here to the draw. Why? Because 
It is kind of odd. It's the first time in history that the draw is eight months removed from the tournament itself. Usually the draws are like, you know, 120 days max out of the first opening match. So you have to take in consideration the level of, of play of the players of that current season. Now we're talking about a World Cup that is going to start in November and that will uh, we will have to wear. We will have to wait for the new European and local seasons to begin to see what type of level the, the you know, the marquee players are, are having, what type of season they're having. Uh, you know, there might be summer transfers. I mean, we will see if Kylian Mbappé stays at PSG or he plays the World Cup as a Real Madrid player. And, you know, there's so many ifs uh, eight months down the road. Uh, Argentina, answering your question, gets a, a good opening match against Saudi Arabia. Uh, usually, Argentines bring a lot of people to the World Cups. Uh, they had like 40,000, 50,000 in, in Russia. I expect the same here. So I don't know where they're going to fit so many people because, you know, ni- neighboring Saudi Arabia will bring lots of fans that will come just driving to, to Doha, to mm-hmm. Qatar. Um, so we, we will, you know, we shall see how that second Mexico game is obviously Mexico gets uh, to open against Poland. So I think to answer your question now, eight months removed, uh, hopefully Messi will be fit. Messi will be in good shape. Uh, Argentina, I'm fairly confident that Argentina can win the group. So you talk about how the World Cup is eight months away, and that's the first time it's not been in the summer months. But obviously you've had a lot of experience covering World Cups your time in Qatar, because you obviously made a couple of trips there and you're there right now. How has it been in Qatar uh, in the buildup for the World Cup, even though it is eight months away? This country is ready to host the World Cup right now. That mm-hmm. is what is amazing. Um, I, I don't think it has happened before anywhere uh, because they, they usually, you know, put the last brick on, on a stadium, I don't know, a week or a month before. Yeah, really. Uh, the Im- yeah, yeah. The infrastructure here is is tremendous. I've been coming here for a good number of years now, and and it's just incredible how it has grown. Um, you know, the infrastructure is is first world, and uh, really, there. I mean, the stadiums are ready, and and hopefully, they will have enough hotel beds to put everyone here because now that the draw has been done, uh, the excitement will grow and, and people that can get hold of tickets will want to come and I'm sure that there will be a huge demand, you know, all over the world uh, to, to come to Qatar. So um, I think this country is, is, is ready. And I really think for various reasons, it should be like Infantino said, the greatest World Cup in history because players are going to be rested. They don't have to travel anywhere. They sleep in their own bed for the duration of the tournament. And this applies to us uh, who will be covering and to the fans that will be coming. They don't have to take a train. They don't have to hop on a bus. They don't have to take a plane anywhere. They will play. Uh, the, the World Cup is called FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022. It should really be called FIFA World Cup Doha 2022 because the eight stadiums are within grass. You can mm-hmm. see you know, two or three matches in a day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I think it's interesting because you talk about how the traveling is going to be so minimized for this World Cup. And that's such a fair point that it really does have an easier toll on the players. But is it raise any kind of concern for you that the World Cup is in the middle of the club season and that could impact what we see in terms of uh, action in the World Cup? No, I think it's the other way around. Uh, usually the big stars get to the summer World Cups with 60-plus games. I'm, I'm talking about, obviously, the, the, the big stars, Neymar, Messi, Lewandowski, mm-hmm. uh, you name it. You know what I mean, the, the, the ones that play European football. Um, so this time around, uh, I think it will be either cut in half or less. They will have fresher legs for sure because, you know, they will not have played so many matches, competitive matches, uh, before arriving here in November. So I, I don't think, um, I think it will be beneficial for the national teams to have players with fresher legs than they usually have in the summer World Cups after the draining uh, seasons that they have. So Andres, I just want to have a couple more questions just about your time covering World Cups. Just really quickly, what is for you 
in your illustrious career, the most memorable World Cup moment that you've had the chance to uh, to call? I didn't get to call the uh, Maradona goal against England in 1986. I was working as a written journalist. Uh, written journalism journalist uh, at that time I was at the Estadio Azteca so that is obviously on the, the the winning the World Cup against Germany in that same World Cup was definitely uh, one of is my you know my fondest memory mm-hmm. and then you know I remember every single game of the World Cup in in the US in 1994 because what it meant for for my career and and what it meant for US soccer and uh, obviously, I have a fond memory of every single goal that I called in the World Cup finals themselves, even though in 2014, the one that God says scored hurt a lot. Uh, I, I had to, you know, give it all because it was, you know, six minutes from time, mm-hmm. from uh, overtime. And, and I knew that that was the winning World Cup goal. And obviously, Landon Donovan's goal. Uh, against Algiers in South Africa, I also remember very fondly because of what it meant there. Uh, in the last World Cup, the Marcos Rojo goal for Argentina was going. It was in the same position that the U.S. was against Algiers, minutes away from being eliminated in the opening in the group stage, which would have been a major embarrassment. And Marcos Rojo came out of nowhere to score that goal against uh, Nigeria and Saint Petersburg. So, you know, there's so many, but obviously. The ones that impact uh, the game, the result, and, and most definitely the winning goal of the World Cup are probably my fondest memories. Mm-hmm. And I'll wrap up with this. Uh, so you talk about how this year's World Cup is so balanced and there's a lot of great teams throughout the group, not like one major group. Uh, do you have any teams that, or teams or players, I should say, that you're really keeping an eye on in terms of uh, who could do well in this World Cup and maybe surprise a couple people? Um, I would like to say Belgium. I think Belgium has uh, great talented players. I mean, I love the way Kevin De Bruyne is is playing. Um, obviously, again, I have to refer back to. I wish I could answer this question in October. You know, mm, I yeah. need to see Messi's fitness level, how he is, how he's team, how he's playing in his team, wherever, whatever team he will be playing in in, in the next season. You know, maybe it won't be PSG. Yeah. Uh, Lewandowski, the, you know, the same. But usually, I mean, this will be Cristiano's last hurrah, Messi's last hurrah, uh, Lewandowski last hurrah. And, uh, you know, and Neymar's probably last World Cup, he already announced it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I think they will give it their all to help their countries go as far as possible. And hopefully they will all be fresh, fit and, and ready to go come November. All right. Well, Andres, we can always hope for those kind of things. Uh, thanks for talking to me. Don't want to take up any more of your time and looking forward to uh, hearing your voice in uh, November in Qatar. Thank you. Thank you, Cal. Thank you. Thank very you, much. Andres. Have a good one. Okay, well, thank you to Andres Cantor, Telemundo and uh, Kyle for the doing that interview. We're going to head into Listener Mailbag. We've got a lot of feedback uh, in regards to last week's episodes that we discussed a lot of topics, uh, first of which was the MLS TV deal, and we gave our latest uh, updates on that. Actually, before getting into that uh, some more in regards to your um, responses and questions, uh, the latest update is that there is no update. Um, The deadline, well, it really wasn't the deadline, but uh, MLS Commissioner Don Garber had mentioned uh, on a call in February with uh, the press, which I was on, that uh, he hoped that the deal would be announced by the end of the the first quarter, which would have been March 31st. And here we are recording this on Friday, April 1st, and still no announcement, still no finalization. So uh, as we discussed on last week's podcast and on the website, worldsoccertalk.com, there's a lot of issues for them to get through to to resolve before they can go ahead and actually uh, get a deal. So let's talk about that. First up is David. David says, MLS producing games and streaming, some with basic subscription, some with a MLS channel subscription on Amazon or Apple, uh, seems like a natural fit. More people probably have Amazon Prime than cable at this point. Dave goes on to say, you theorize that MLS may be hurting due to the right split from U.S. soccer. I am skeptical. If U.S. soccer rights are such a big draw for English bidders, why did U.S. soccer accept a rather modest offer for their English rights? 
If standalone U.S. soccer English rights are worth $30 billion per year, they seem unlikely to be a main cause of MLS rights reputedly uh, falling far short of $300 million per year expectations. And Dave, that's a couple of good points there, too. I would argue definitely, and I think Kartik, uh, if he was available this week, would probably argue the same, too, is that um, on the last deal that uh, U.S. soccer and MLS uh, signed uh, together as part of so- Soccer United Marketing is that the valuation or, or basically what U.S. soccer got from those rights, which was $30 million per year, roughly, was undervalued. It should have been much greater than that. However, going into this next uh, uh, TV rights cycle, which starts next year, 2023, uh, it doesn't include U.S. World Cup qualifiers because they've already qualified for the 2026 World Cup. Uh, while it hasn't been made official yet, but they're not going to have to qualify for the World Cup in 2026, which means the games that are available are going to be mostly friendlies or you mean, She Believes Cup or uh, those types of games too, where it's going to be maybe a, a send-off series or it's going to be mostly friendlies or, or kind of uh, friendly tournaments. So that's why the rights... Um, you mean, US Soccer did the deal with, with Turner Sports and Warner Media got a good deal out of it um but if it had been including world cup qualifiers then we'd be talking more money there mercator says i still think mls should be able to get 300 million dollars from someone the ratings have never been great i get the latest numbers are particularly poor but it's really nothing new and so i don't think the calculus has really changed mls has a ton of games potential english and spanish markets you can probably bully them to put a minimal number of games on TV. Maybe they won't get $300 million, but I think broadcasters would be foolish. It's a small price to pay to essentially get everything from a top five US sports league. There are no similar opportunities elsewhere. Amazon just may be interested. They only go for deals, and if MLS is under $250 million, I think that's just just the sort of deal that they may look at. Are international rights included for a company like Amazon or Apple? If they can roll out MLS rights globally, I think that's a huge deal. A ton of football on at a time uh, when there's not there isn't a lot of football on soccer. That is, I would prefer prefer it to be fully streaming on Amazon, Apple, ESPN Plus would all be great. I don't think it matters. It's not on TV. MLS games on TV are not going to uh, drive viewers, uh, as the latest numbers show. Make sure that U.S. qualifies for the World Cup, put that on broadcast TV, and then people will be happy to tune into MLS on streaming. Next up is Greg. Greg says, you briefly touched on it, but the limited number of viable expansion slots in MLS should be a concern. Right now, it's almost a Ponzi operation where they need regular infusions of new franchise fees to stay in the black. And as has been discussed, the league is too big as is. Hard to get to know any teams in depth. Quality of play suffers when you dilute dilute the talent. Roberto says, if the MLS is to expand its viewers, they need to keep their young star players. Those with academies have to get their development money back by holding on to players for two to five years. Then if the players still want to go to Europe, their value would have increased and then the return would be larger. By staying with the club, people would have more stars to bring them to stadiums and hopefully watch on TV. Chris says, I want to ask you about an aspect of the next MLS TV deal that could be a piece of it, and that is the the regionalization of nationally televised games. This is a common practice with Major League Baseball, especially on Fox, in that Fox picks three to four games they want to air on on Saturday afternoons that are going on at the same time and airs them on over-the-air television, but only in the markets of the two teams or one market if they're playing the Toronto Blue Jays. My question to you is, do you see that being part of the next MLS TV deal? I, I don't think so, Chris. I don't think so. I think it's going to be... I mean, at the end of the day, it's up to the broadcasters to do uh, what they want with those rights. So if they're picking up the rights to some of these, I mean, kind of uh, games on for the, I mean, for a national audience, also for kind of a kind of the the regional audience, they get to decide how they want to go ahead and use the, those kind of local rights. Do they have, I mean, ESPN Plus Chicago or ESPN Plus New York, where they would have the rights to 
uh, those teams just as two examples and then decide to have the national national games on ESPN2 or ESPN, uh, the main channel. It, it's up to the broadcasters. All right, Matt. Matt says, I wanted to put my own two cents on the MLS TV deal. MLS, first of all, got way too greedy for how much they wanted for these rights. You compare this to the USL, and you can't say I'm shocked. Yes, the USL is nowhere near the size, but their risk of going all in on the online space with occasional games on television has worked well for them, and and the position they accept being the second league behind Major League Soccer. MLS trying maybe a similar approach would benefit them more long-term, like Kartik mentioned. As for why companies may not be interested or as interested in the rights is maybe to look at the view counts of highlights. This isn't maybe the best metric to ride on, of uh, of course, but it's uh, but to look at these, but but to look at the highlights itself, not because of the quality of the highlights, but the viewing numbers. If we subtract the viewers away from those who may use a VPN to get around the geo blocking, you compare MLS highlights view count on YouTube being under 100,000 for a majority of games this season. Meanwhile, you look at the Premier League for a game like Leicester against uh, Brentford, two respectable but not huge teams with the biggest followings, uh, not not with the biggest followings in the US, and you see the game is nearing closer to 200,000 um, views, even with potential geo block. And this would be rights highlights that would be only in the United States. Meanwhile, I'm sure that the MLS is free for anyone to watch highlights worldwide on YouTube with no geo-blocking issues. Matt continues, uh, simply put, the MLS is not worth investing in as much as it thinks it is worth investing in when I see numbers like this alone. Will says, I think Chris nailed it when he talked about getting the rest of the country interested. Since the beginning, that has always been a major issue for me. Why should I care? The closest team to me is Austin FC, and you know the history with Austin FC in San Antonio. That's a no-go for me. All right, moving on. We've got a discussion about Charlotte FC and their ticket prices. Greg says, it's shocking how expensive the Charlotte ticket prices were. Do you know if they do dynamic pricing? So some matches, especially early on, while initial interest is higher, will be more expensive. Growing a fan base means hooking people in early, and lower costs are the best way. If I lived in Charlotte and saw those prices, I'd stop caring at all about going to see it live. But if the price were reasonable enough for single-game tickets, that would keep me coming back. Loco Footy says Charlotte's owners pulled a a fast one and became the first MLS team to sell season tickets as PSLs, like the NFL. Uh, and PSLs, if I remember correctly, is a uh, a personal a personal seat license. So, for example, uh, if you wanted to get a season ticket to Charlotte FC, um, as I understand it, you would first have to pa- uh, buy a license to uh, have that seat, and then which sometimes can be thousands of dollars, sometimes, uh, and then you can get a season ticket. So that gives you the right to that seat, and then you pay for a season ticket on top of that. So for some of the uh, the teams, and this happens a lot within NFL, so some of the teams, it could be thousands of dollars. And a PSL, you mean kind of a, um, a seat license, is kept within a family and sometimes is passed down from generation to generation uh, because there's such high demand uh, for NFL seats. So, yeah. Uh, Local Footy continues. He says, the tickets are way more expensive. They got criticized for the move, but business as usual. Atlanta United does not have PSLs as Arthur Blank thankfully decided to keep that separate uh, between the Falcons and Atlanta United. Matt says, finally, in regards to ticket prices, I think USL has done a really good job with fan engagement. When you and Chris talked about the MLS deal, I couldn't help but think that uh, the USL values their fans more ticket price wise and accessibility to watch uh, the league since I began to follow the league in 2017. And and most of the games um, are on what ESPN Plus uh, usually. NWSL, uh, Dave had some comments, and this one's really for more for Kartik, but uh, unfortunately Kartik's not on this episode. But Dave says, did I hear correctly that NWSL produces games for CBS? I have credited CBS for a fine job covering NWSL, but perhaps credit uh, belongs with NWSL, or did I misunderstand? 
So we'll have to ask Kartik on that one on the next episode. And last but not least, Greg talks about the uh, the, 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 the kind of the debate or the the, the possibility of um, daylight savings time um, being made permanent. Greg says the idea is ridiculous. Even in summer, there would be plenty of daylight at night without it. Time zones are already aligned with when the sun is expected to rise for optimal uh, uh, circadian rhythm for waking up. Earlier darkness isn't bad, helps with uh, melatonin production, but also it was tried and failed in 1974. If anything, the switch, as you said, should be aligned worldwide and should be later in the spring and earlier in the fall to avoid disruption in the mornings. The the abrupt changes to darkness uh, when waking is worse than suddenly uh, earlier darkness at night. And earlier in the year, the change to darker evenings will come after most of the evening rush hour. So likely fewer traffic accidents issues on both ends of the commute. And that's the thing, too. If you're a fan of soccer, you probably, compared to the average American, you probably have a uh, a better knowledge of uh, time differences between different countries, uh, in, between Europe and South America, which wherever you watch soccer from around the world, uh, you mean knowing those things than, than an average American who maybe just is, you mean kind of fine-tuned into wherever he or she lives and into that time zone. We're watching games from around the world uh, at all so- sorts of different times, and those kickoff times and those uh, differences in time do affect us. Um, but that's interesting, really, Greg, about uh, the uh, the move to uh, get rid of, well, actually make daylight savings time permanent. Listeners, if you've got something you want to ask us, we'd love to read your comment out on air. You can always reach us via email through web at worldsoccertalk.com as well as facebook.com uh, slash worldsoccertalk and on twitter at worldsoccertalk plus of course you can always post your comments on worldsoccertalk.com and don't forget ask your smart speaker to play the World Soccer Talk podcast we will be back next week with an episode uh, with Karthik Krishnayar talking about club soccer the international break is over uh, the World Cup draw is done club soccer returns And it's club soccer uh, from here on (laughs) until the season's end. So uh, on behalf of everyone at worldsoccertalk.com, thank you so much and enjoy your football. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.